I'm here with Dr. Stacy Friedman. I always mess up last name, so I'm just happy that I got it right. <laughs> uh, she's going to introduce herself and just tell us a little bit about herself and you know what she does and all that stuff. Right now? Yes. <laughs> Let's go. Hi, I'm Dr. Stacy Friedman, and uh, I'm a clinical sexologist and certified sex coach. And I have a doctorate in human sexuality, and I always get the question, what do you do? <laughs> so um, basically what a sexologist is somebody that studies the field of sexuality and human sexuality. So I help as a coach, I help people trying to find what their goal is in their relationship or within themselves and try to find different types of action plans using uh, home assignments or fun activities that they could do with their partner or on their own and be able to reach their goals and what they're looking to achieve through, you know, sexuality. Well, like, <laughs> what made you want to become a sexologist? Like, was that just something you're like, I mean, like, that's not something I thought of when I was a kid. Like, hey, I want to be a sexologist. It was like astronaut, fireman. It's like these typical things. So, like, what... What kind of guided you in that direction? Um, well, when I was younger, um, I was always interested in um, just humans in general. So I actually got into the field of psychology. Um, but when I was in high school, people always felt that they can come to me and talk to me about anything. So I used to talk to people about their relationships, about things that they've done and all these different um things that they maybe they would not comfortable talking with other people. So they used to kind of talk to me and say I was Dr. Ruth, the Dr. Ruth of high school. <laughs> so this was years ago um, because I was just so nonchalant about sex. I just thought it was a natural thing. I was fun. It was, um, you know, even though being in high school, it was limited, but I was always, you know, having a good time making out with people and just not thinking, Oh gosh, you know, you know, being all shy and everything. So I think that, when people kept on saying, oh, you should do this for a living, you should do this for a living, I decided when I went to college to go in for a psychology because I thought, oh, you know, I'll be a psychologist to help people. But then I was like, I got to specialize in something a little bit more, um, you know, have a little bit more of a niche. And then it became sexuality. And I think that a lot of people have struggled talking about sex. And with me being able to do it is just kind of just it was my thing. It just fell into my pack, my back pocket, practically. Do you think at any point that it will kind of be an open topic because it's really just, you know, you just don't talk about it kind of right now? I hope it would be an open topic. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm trying, you know, people would make fun of me because I would sit there and I would say penis or vagina or orgasm or clit mm -hmm. and people would be like, oh, my God, how do you say that with a straight face? I said, well, how do you say nose, eyes, ears, and mouth? Same thing. It's a part of the body. It's a natural, you know, um, a natural thing that all human, well, most humans do. So I hope that people see that you can have so much of a better life and a relationship and understand yourself if you're not so shy and hush hush about it. There's a lot more of us, when I say us, meaning sexologists that are kind of coming into the world and understanding the need for it. So hopefully we can teach people to be able to be a little more open and, and be able to enjoy it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially I think in schools, like I, I always feel like, you know, no one talked to me about this, you know, it was always just like some friend or someone I met and they were well, just that, tell 
Exactly. There's no sex education. The only sex education they have is since you can't get pregnant, make sure you wear a condom. You know, it's uh, something that they talk about differences in who you're attracted to, differences in gender, differences in just even where your body parts are and how people feel pleasure. You know, you go into these relationships and you expect to know what the hell you're doing, <laughs> you know, and most people, most people just go in with practice of what they've done before and may not understand that there's so much involved that you don't learn. Mm -hmm. you know? And being a sexologist, you, is it something you just like helping people with the problems that they don't really talk to about with other people? Basically. I mean, it's, you know, there's all different types of people that do the work that I do. And there's people that do body work, which mm -hmm. actually physically will help people. There's surrogates that actually help people where they um, struggle with certain things that they actually need someone to do hands-on work. Um, but that's not what I do. I work with people more in guiding them for their goals with communication and with their own, you know, their own work, their own play, their own uh, strategies. And the thing, the difference between what I do and like therapy, because I don't mm -hmm. do sex therapy, I don't process through a lot of traumatic or abusive events. I usually will work with people once they've been able to process through that. And then they come to me and they say, okay, well, now that I've processed through it, how do I fix this relationship I'm in? Or how do I get into a positive relationship? I help people with dating. You know, a lot of people will come out of a divorce and not, you know, be able, not be able to connect with others emotionally or, you know, what do I do with sex? You know, it, what is sex now? I'm 50 years old. We got divorced. I've been with the same person for so many years. What do I do? You know, a lot of performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. And does it, does it, is it, do you think it's difficult, more difficult than like, you know, a therapy and other stuff, you know, regular kind of psychology stuff? Is what more difficult? Uh, Doing the sexologist, being a sexologist and trying to figure that out. Or is it just, it's kind of the know, same thing, just, you know, a taboo topic kind of. It's the same thing with a taboo topic, but I think it's sometimes even more difficult because. It's not something that you would just go up and talk to a stranger about. Mm -hmm. so, not that you would talk to your strain to a stranger about other aspects of your life, but people don't want to admit that they're struggling in their sex life because for some reason there's some, you know, something out there that people think if you're struggling in your sex life, that you're failing at something and it's not. And like you had asked about education, if you're not being educated somewhere, which most people are not, how are you supposed to know what you're doing is right? So, so many people, I have either men or women that come in without their partners because their partner's like, I'm not going to see somebody about sex. There's nothing wrong with sex. But yet their partner's like saying, yeah, there is. But the other person, their ego is too bruised to think that, oh, maybe I do need help with sex. Mm. So it's a little more intimate and it's a little more difficult for a lot of people to talk about. Uh, but it's basically the same type of counseling. It's just a little bit more in depth, literally. <laughs> so do you write books about this or anything like that? Or is it? Just... I actually did just write a book. 
Mm. I just finished it about a week ago. It's called Confessions and Lessons of a Sexpert, The uh, Ultimate Guide to Intimacy and Better Sex. And it's something that you can get on Amazon. It's an easy read, but it's something that can give people a little head start in working on themselves and their relationship. And um, I also offer a free PDF on my site, which is drstacybook.com. So people can download a free copy, or if they like to have paperback, they could actually get a book on Amazon. But it's just, like I said, it's an easy read. And I think one of the most important things regarding sex is getting to know yourself. And people, especially women, are afraid to learn themselves meaning touching, you know, exploring, uh, that's very taboo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Does it get like the, the taboos and like, you know, I mean, S and M and all the other stuff, does that get involved at all? Or is it just like kind of, uh, just traditional? I don't know. I don't know how to phrase this. I'm really bad at this. <laughs> See, exactly. This is the problem is that people are not used to talking about it. So no one knows what to say or how mm-hmm. to say, mm-hmm. uh, no, the, what I do, I work with all aspects of sexuality. So I work with people that have fetishes, that have um, alternative lifestyles. Um, that's actually one of my specialties is working with people that are either polyamorous, which means having more than one love partner, um, people who are swinging in the lifestyle where they're with other couples, um, people that are into the BDSM, trying to either help them learn a little bit more or help them navigate a relationship where one partner is interested in one thing and the other partner is not kind of tricky mm-hmm. because people have different sexual preferences and not everyone's going to match. And sometimes, unfortunately, a marriage could, you know, die just because of sex, you know, lack of sex, different sexual interests, people not being open about sex. The problem is, is people aren't able to talk to their partners about sex because they're afraid of what their partner's going to say, or they're afraid of being judged. And so people won't talk about it. And that's mm. a how do you, how do you kind of open that dialogue up? Is it just, you just start talking about it and see where it goes, or is it just like, how does that kind of uh, situation go if you want to start talking about it? It's tricky, but I usually tell people that, especially if they're in my office, I let people know the reason why your partner is saying this to you is because they want to improve on the relationship. They want to spice up the relationship. They want to be able to find ways to open up the relationship and be a little more adventurous. And there's nothing wrong with listening to your partner. Mm-hmm. You know, there's many men who are afraid to, um, or not men, well, men and women, but that are afraid to bring up, let's say a woman wants to, Uh, be a little more adventurous and and bring someone else into the relationship. And usually it's the man that would be like, oh, that would be awesome. Mm. But many times where the woman is bored and thought it might be fun to try something, but doesn't want to bring it up to their partner because they're afraid that their husband might be like, oh, sure, you want another man? Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're cheating behind my back. I mean, same thing with with the man who brings it up. But people are so quick to judge and so quick to you know, say, what does he want another person for? Am I not satisfying them? It has nothing to do with that. You know, sometimes you're with somebody for many years and you want to do something different. You want to spice it up. It's not about leaving your partner. It's about including them 
in the fun. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they agree with it, but when I'm in the session, I try to get them to say, let's talk about desires. They're only desires right now. doesn't mean they have to be done. And see what your partner's saying. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Do you think there's a lot of kind of uh, double standards um, in like where the man wants to do something but not willing to let the other person do it as well? Like with the partner thing as well. Very much so. I'm dealing, I deal with it all the time where the man um, feels it's okay for him to go outside the marriage to cheat or to, um, you know, even just watch porn, all this kind of stuff. But then if they find out that their woman is flirting or, or, you know, watching porn, then they automatically feel a hit to the ego and say that something's wrong with that. Um, you know, it's supposedly expected for men to do these things and it's not, you know, it's just how do you respect your relationship and what do you want from it? And there's definitely double standards, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And is it the, mostly the culture? I mean, like porn is, I mean, I mean, it's the biggest industry ever, bigger than Google and bigger than anything. So like, is it that that is kind of affecting people and like how they think of relationships? I always wondered. I think that the most of the time when you're younger, it's usually more of the men get into watching porn. But I think that they look at it as what a relationship is supposed to be. And it's not. Porn is, they're, they're paid actors and actresses to perform. And so what happens is that a lot of times you get this um, messed up, vision of what a relationship is, what sex is supposed to be. And so when they get into relationships and it's not like that, they're like, oh, this is not right. So they're always looking for something else to stimulate, to make it as erotic and as crazy as porn is. Now, that's not to say that there's some people that don't have those types of relationships because people have all different sexual appetites. But I think that if porn is assumed to be what a relationship is, then that's a little bit of a skewed, um, idea of what, you know, what porn can do, but porn can be very healthy for relationships too. I mean, there's not, I don't want to say there's good, there's good and bad for porn. Um, when it's taking the place of your partner, then, you know, you have an issue. If you're using it together or you're using it on your own and it's not affecting your relationship, I don't necessarily feel there's anything wrong with it. Um, but there are some people that if they find that their partner is watching porn, um, there's a big problem. Hmm. That's interesting. I never thought of it like that. I, th- I always thought it was just normal for anyone to do it. Right. Well, it, it's not, I mean, it's, most people can do it, mm. but I think that what happens is that I'll just give an example for women. If a woman finds their man watching porn, then a lot of times they feel less worthy. They feel less attractive. They feel like they're not good enough and they're not looking at it as a sexual outlet or just something that a man enjoys. They look at it, oh, they're cheating, they're watching porn. If the woman is completely satisfied in the relationship and it's not, the porn is not taking anything out of it and the man is not doing anything other than just watching I mean, you don't want them interacting because then when they're interacting, that can be a little bit more 
um, of a betrayal, mm-hmm. but you're just watching porn. It's because it's a, you know, it's a turn on for many people, but that doesn't necessarily take away from the marriage or the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How has kind of like the internet and everything just changed the kind of sexologists and like where we were 20 years ago to now kind of, how has that kind of changed? Well, now that we have so much access to um, sex and porn and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot more people with so-called porn addictions. Mm. Um, And there's a much easier way to connect with others privately. Mm. So a lot of secrecy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see in my practice, I have someone right now where they're – having a possible, you know, divorce because of porn. And what they're doing is they're kind of using it as, well, you know what, you're being cruel to me. I'm going to just watch porn and leave you out of it. And in that case, you're using it as a weapon as opposed to something that can help increase your relationship and make it better. Mm -hmm. So I think with access to internet, it's definitely affecting relationships. And do you think there's an actual addiction or is it just people kind of getting, I don't know, like, is it an actual addiction? I always wonder. Is it an actual addiction? I think that it can be. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, But I think that so many people are so quick to call it an addiction when it's more of a little bit of a compulsion, a little bit more of boredom, a little bit more of frustration with your partner. So what I do as a sexologist is a sex coach is to listen to why they're looking at it, what they're getting from it, how it's affecting their relationship. And, you know, there's people that will sit there and they'll have to, you know, leave their work to go to the bathroom to watch it. Or they'll, you know, be in the middle of having dinner with their family and have this urge and have to go, you know, to the bathroom and watch it and and kind of hide it from their partner. But a lot of times they hide it from their partner because at the beginning, their partner was not accepting of them watching it. Mm, Interesting. So it starts turning into this way of coping with things. And when it gets to that point, because what it does is it increases your, um, what is it? Your epinephrine? Mm. Your dopamine. Yeah. It's increases. And, and so it kind of gives you that little bit of that excitement and that high. And so if you're not getting it on life and you're not getting it with your partner and you're not um, communicating your needs, you wind up kind of keep going back to that. And that's where it kind of can turn into an addiction. Mm-hmm. And do you like, do you do therapy with both of them? Not therapy, but like, uh, do you help both of them or is it just usually it's always just the one person just coming to you? When you're in a relationship, it's never just the one person. But that being said, I do take the person who supposedly has the addiction um, and talk and talk to them one-on-one a couple times just to try to see what it is that's bringing them there. And if it is something that is a true addiction where they need to have actual therapy, then I would re- you know send them out to a therapist. Um, but you know, a lot of times it's mm. also about having the partner understand that, you know, you're judging your partner because they're watching porn that makes them feel guilty, makes them feel shame. And these types of feelings will lead people to do more of it. 
because they have to feel like it's their dirty secret. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I try to help both of them where they can open it up and understand each other better. And what are the kind of the biggest problems that men face and also women in, in kind of that, you know, it's, I mean, do they just have issues with interacting with each other? Is that kind of how it is? There's a big problem with men and women not being able to communicate, um, especially sexual communication. <coughs> Excuse me. But I'd say one of the biggest problems that I have with uh, men coming in or couples is there's a difference in sex drive. So you'll have the man usually is the one who wants it more and the woman doesn't want it as much or not at all. And so you have to try to kind of pair them back and get them to compromise somewhere in the middle. So that's a little tricky. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that's, that's one of the main problems with couples. Mm, so you try to meet in the middle of the road like, oh, he he likes having sex every day of the week and she likes having it three, four times a week. Like, is it kind of like just figuring out that kind of aspect? There's a little bit of that, but I think a lot of it is to figure out what does sex mean to them? Mm -hmm. Just intercourse? Is it connecting? Is it intimacy? Um, is it just time spent together? And a lot of times people look at the word sex and think of intercourse. And for women, they would be more intimate if they can, if it didn't lead to the actual act every single time. So we try to find ways to get the woman to feel a little more in control of the intimacy part and then get them to understand how a man feels when it comes to the sexuality, the sex part. So it's not just saying, okay, well, he wants it five days a week. You want it twice. Let's meet them and do it three times. It's about... Why does she not want it more? Why does he need it more? What is missing in the component? What component is missing? Because a lot of times it's, there's not enough foreplay or he doesn't know what he's doing to be able to give me an orgasm. And I try saying to women, it's about you helping him also. But rather than them speaking up because they're embarrassed, they just would rather not have sex. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of going a little deeper and just, you know, how many days do you want it? How many days do you want it? Mm. That makes yeah, that makes sense. I never thought of it like that. This is so eye opening to me because I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's not every day you talk to a sexologist. So it's like, it's like, right. I'm trying to pick your brain because I absolutely know nothing. And because you know, everyone lives in their bubble and it's like, oh, yep. this is how it works. This is how it works. And then you talk to someone and it's not how it works for them. Like, it's, right. it's totally different. So I think it's really individualized, would you say? It's very, it's very individualized. I mean, you can have two couples with the same exact problem with sex drive. And one of it has to do with the fact that the guy is not listening to the woman and is not giving her enough foreplay and is, is not being affectionate and this and that. And then the second one could be that the woman is not giving the man what he needs and He's just pushing and pushing and pushing because he's touch deprived or whatever. I mean, it could be to two totally different aspects. You know, um, it could be that the one person's overworked and the other one's not appreciating them or whatever it is. There's just so, and that's the hardest thing is that you're not only working with the couple, but you're working with the individual as well. Mm -hmm. So 
you're trying to figure out, first of all, what's going on in their mind, what's going on in their mind, and then what's going on together as a couple. Mm. And you, do you have them like do exercises where they talk to each other about it, or is it just like kind of like uh, I tell you what I think and like how does that work? The exercises all depends on what the um, issue or concern is, but basically, a lot of times when we have couples and their problem is intimacy or lack of intimacy or lack of sex. I asked them, when was the last time that you guys hugged and kissed each other? And many times they say, oh, it's been a while. Well, if you're not doing the basic touches of warmth and compassion and and sensitivity and all that, you're not going to go from no touching to the bedroom. So some of the exercises are simple. I say simple because it should be something simple, but it's not many times, would be just to give each other a 20-second hug. How many times have you guys hugged each other where you actually sit there in your arms for more than five seconds? And a lot of times they can't remember. And I'm like, you know, give each other a hug, smell your, your hair, smell your skin, feel the warmth, listen to the heart beating, um, you know, things like that. And just give your body a chance to relax in each other's arms. And those are the types of exercises. It could be just going out and to go to a comedy club and have fun and laugh. Many times the people, they go out, they have dinner, they go to a movie and they come home and they don't have any of the talking. They don't have any of the laughing, um, you know, things like that. So those are some of the exercises. And then for people that have problems with more intimate stuff, like let's say women with orgasms and, and not knowing their body, some of the exercises are, first of all, take a mirror and look at yourself. Hmm, that's interesting. See what it's going on down there. Many women don't know. I mean, guys, it sticks right out. <laughs> you can see it. It's, it's easy to, to see what your anatomy looks like. A woman, a lot of times, don't, doesn't know her anatomy. So one of the exercises might be take a mirror and take a look and see what you see and, and, and point out some of the areas to make it so you understand your body better. What, what is kind of like... What do other sexologists think of other sexologists? Like, is it? We love each other. Is it a tight community? It is a very tight community. It's, uh, you find another sexologist and you feel like you found your brother or your sister. <laughs> because like you had said, you probably didn't talk to anybody that was a sexologist because there's not a lot of us out there. And I think that when you do find somebody that feels passionate about helping others in regards to sexuality... It's like you fall in love. <laughs> I think people who are sexologists are also very open-minded and very warm and welcoming and understand people's differences and accept people's differences and realize that there's so much to a person, so deep, literally, that you just have to appreciate people for who they are. Mm-hmm. And do y'all just learn from each other, kind of like yep. give each other advice? Yep. As a matter of fact, that's one of the calls I have at ten at ten fifteen today. Is that uh, I have another sexologist that I'm going to be uh, on the phone with to discuss a case. So we help each other out because you know we don't know everything, and because it is such a hush hush subject, there's many things that we learn from people that we never maybe heard of before. It's rare because you know we as sexologists have a lot of education to be able to, to learn these things, but it's always helpful to throw ideas off each other and, 
you know, see what other people think. Just like everyone has a specialty, sexologists have their specialty. I mean, my specialty is working with couples and recreating that intimacy and connection and helping with the mismatched sex drives. And then working with women that have painful sex, uh, low libido, difficulty with sex due to menopause, pregnancy, um, orgasmic issues. So anything regarding women and then working with the LGBT community mm. are my three specialties um, that I'm very passionate about helping. Mm. How is that working with the LGBT community? Is it, is it a lot different than, you know, straight couples or is it kind of just the same? Just it's, it's mostly the same because people are people, but there's an added difficulty because of societal um, pro, societal, uh, what's the word? Um, I, I'm losing my word, but societal pressures, um, hatred, you know, most people don't hate on heterosexual couples, but as soon as you find out someone is gay or lesbian or whatever, automatically there's a judgment there. And that's what we need to understand is that Love is love and attraction is attraction. You can be attracted to anybody you want. And it's a positive thing when you're loving somebody. What does it matter who it is that you love or who it is that you're attracted to? If you're happy, you're happy. So I think that they have that little added difficulty being out in the world and living an LG a life in the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there also stuff like, you know, I mean to, you know, whether it's a lesbian couple or a gay couple, is it just really trying to get them to interact? And what are, what are their issues? Cause I always think right. like, uh, they're the perfect people because, you know, they're the same sex. So, <laughs> like, it's like, to me, it's like, you know, a dude and a dude, I can get along with any other person that's a guy. So right. how, how does it, what are their issues? Is it, because it's, it's, I mean, sex is sex and people have t so many different ideas of what they like and what they don't like. And sexuality is fluid. So you can enjoy one thing one day and, and for a couple of years and the next time you just don't. And so any relationship, whether you're with two women or two men, you're still going to have two different people. <coughs> Excuse me. Just like as if you are heterosexual and you date one woman, you're going to be dating another woman that's going to be completely different. So it's the same thing in, in the LGBT community. You're going to be with people that have totally different personalities. I think that, you know, obviously positions are different. So sometimes there's uh, difficulties that a heterosexual couple may not have because they sometimes will have sex in different ways. Um, and basically, you know, I work with a lot of people just trying to distinguish who they are. You know, what is their sexuality? What is their gender? You know, it's, it's very difficult to sometimes have people accept who they are because they're afraid of societal pressure and societal judgment. And, um, you know, people come to me just wondering, you know, who am I? Am I gay? Am I a lesbian? Am I transgender? Um, you know, so I think that everyone comes with their own issues. And I think a lot of it is who am I? How do I make myself known? How do I come out? How do I navigate this relationship in today's society? Um, but basically everything else is the same as just how do I connect with my partner? You know, how do I deal with this sexual dysfunction? How do I my sex drive? 
And with transgenders, does it is it really difficult to kind of get them out there and like you know have them interact with other people, or is it is it just really easy for them to do? It's definitely not easy. There's um, some people who are a little more confident than others, but I think that because another thing with society, they think that there's something wrong with them. They think that it's a mental disorder to, to be transgender. Um, there's a difference between being transgender and gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is that um, anxiety and depression that someone feels because they are in the wrong gender. Um, it's not the actual issue of being in the wrong gender. It's that stress and, and anxiety that they feel because of it. And that is what the um, diagnosis is, gender dysphoria. So for people that have a lot of support, that have gone to therapy, that are able to start transitioning earlier on, that have a little bit of a better um, situation where they have acceptance, they usually do very good until someone in society puts them down, trashes them, talks bad, makes them uncomfortable, fears, you know, they fear for their lives many times. So it is very, very difficult. And the one thing is that no one would put themselves through that for attention or unless it was something that was absolutely necessary. You know, no one just decides I'm going to do this. You know, it's deep rooted feeling of who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I find, I find that very fascinating because I don't know. There's also this kind of a not tr- transracial movement that's happening, and it's really strange to me seeing that. And then it comes to them being transgender, and it's just it's just very uh, uh, conf- like trying to figure out where the dots lie, and because we don't talk about this, it's just a fact, right? I've never like you're probably one of the very few people that have talked about this too. It's very uh-huh. strange. Like, right. you know, I wouldn't talk to my, my father or my parents. Like, well, They wouldn't know about it either, most likely. And a lot of people don't even want to learn about it. You know, they just automatically want to judge and just say, what's wrong with these people? These people are sick in the head. But how many people have you met that are transgender? <sighs> I, I wouldn't even know. Exactly. And that's the point, is that there are many people who are completely stealth, which means that they are completely under radar. No one knows. I've met a couple people that I know, I knew that they were, but yet when I would tell my, you know, when, when they would say something to a friend of mine, they'd be like, seriously? Oh my God. So many times you don't know. And that's the whole idea is that these people are just people just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and I f- yeah, I feel that's the same with, you know, either them being gay or lesbian. It's like, I, I did not know, you know, sometimes I knew, but then there's other times where I was just like, I was clueless and right. I didn't understand what they were going through. Right. And you also think, you know, when did you know that you were heterosexual when you were attracted to uh, a woman? Mm-hmm. And did you know that you were a guy? See, I think that's interesting. Is that is that? I always wonder if it's, are you born that way, or is it like you're kind of formed into this person? Like that's always been the argument. Is, you know, we're all you know it's encoded in our DNA, or is it just kind of like whatever you're exposed to just happens to be 
what becomes your sexuality or is it not that? What is it? No, it's definitely not that. I mean, there are certain instances where, you know, when there has been say, abuse or rape or something like that, where, um, let's say a woman has been repeatedly in situations where she's been with a man and she has been raped or abused and then she winds up being a lesbian. It's not necessarily in certain cases that that's always how it ends up, but they feel safer with women. But majority, I would say probably 99% of the people that are gay or, or transgender are truly born that way. You know, they are born... You know, like I say to you, you know, I mean, I don't know your sexual, your sexuality or, you know, how you feel about your gender. But let's say I say to people, when did you know you were a guy or a girl? Well, I've always known. And then I say, exactly. Someone who is gender always knows who they were. They didn't have to sit there and decide. It's society that's telling them there's something different because of what's between their legs. Is it, is it a decision? I mean, or is it, it's, it's not a decision? It's a decision to move forward to transition. Mm-hmm. But if you leave a child, like when people say, I know someone who, uh, actually I know a couple people, who by three or four years old were, that you, there's three different things, insistence, persistence, and consistence. They were persistent, they were insistent, and they were consistent in saying who they were. And one of them was a transgender girl and the other one was a transgender boy and both of them by three and four years old were those three things consistent insistent and persistent that they were what they were and which was the opposite of what they were born so at that age as a parent as a doctor as a friend as a teacher they're going to say no you're not a girl honey you're a boy boys have penises girls have vaginas so from an early on stage, they're being taught that what they're feeling that they are is not who they are because of what they have between their legs. So what happens is that society does not allow them to just be true to who they are from an early age. So if you have a parent that now understands what being transgender means, and you have someone who's willing to do the research, you can have a child at three and four years old who is insisting that this is what they are and all these other things, specialists say that, yes, they truly are feeling this way because of their gender, then you're going to have that support and they're going to be able to grow into who they want to be. And when they're on their own with their family, they're fine. But then you put them in society and that's when they realize that they're different. Mm. Or society they're different. Yeah, they have to kind of... I don't. I won't want to say mold them, but they're no. They have to conform, or they're you know, or be ridiculed and beat up and all this kind of stuff. So it's very difficult for someone who is transgender to live the life that they feel that they are that they want to live. Mm-hmm. Is that a problem when it's like you know, someone doesn't they they don't tell people about that stuff? Is that a real issue? I mean, I think sometimes the issue is when they do tell people. You know, it depends on where they are in their transition. You know, a lot of times they tell people you're dealing with the potential of lack of safety, a lack of, you know, you don't know when you open that door up and you let people know, yes, I'm transgender or whatever, then they have to be careful sometimes because their life depends on it. People are not very friendly when it comes to somebody that is opening up about their gender. 
That's interesting. I'm trying to figure this all out. So it's like, to me, it's like putting the pieces together. What, how, how does it actually work? Cause, uh, you know, you know, I grew up in a household where it's like, you're a guy, you're a guy, if right. you're a woman, you're a woman. If you're right. this, you're that. If you think this, then you, you know, you're thinking wrong. Like it was always just like, be, always be black yeah, be what you are. That's what what I kind of took from it. it was like, oh, you know, if you like this kind of stuff, you, you know, that's bad. You know? But see, but that, but now that you say that, that's what people say. Oh, this is the way you were born. This is the way you should be. I'm like, okay, well, if I was born this way, just because I have a penis, I was born feeling like a woman. <clears throat> so why can't I be a woman? It's mm, interesting. You know? Oh, it's you're you're telling someone to be who they are. And, you know, you're trying to force somebody to, oh, well, boys like girls and girls like boys. But if you were born as a heterosexual and life was better or not better, life was um, more, the majority was more gay. Mm -hmm. And you have so-called force to like another man or to be attracted to another man. Okay, I see you can't force someone to be attracted to, if I told you, you have to be gay, there is no such thing as heterosexuality. You have to be attracted to, you have to have sex with another man. If you're heterosexual, you're going to be like, Ugh, you know, mm -hmm. I can't do that. And that's the way it is with people who are gay and, and lesbians. They are attracted to who they are attracted to, and you can't change that attraction. Mm. What about the bisexuality where, you know? Because I think that's kind of how it's always been men and women and men and men. And it's just been kind of like everywhere. Well, that's when you're talking about black and white. There is mm -hmm. no black and white. It's all shades of gray. Mm -hmm. 50 shades of gray. <laughs> Did you like that movie? I, I, I would like to like the book and everything. Was that? Yeah, it was a good movie. But the whole thing is that there's so there's so many shades of gray when it comes to bisexuality. Mm -hmm. That's means that people can be attracted to men and people can be attracted to women. People can be attracted. There's a term pansexual where people can be attracted to anybody, whether they are a man or a woman, they could be someone attracted to someone who's transgender, someone who doesn't even feel like they have a gender. Um, <coughs> someone who feels like they're both genders there, you know, an attraction is an attraction. If you're attracted to someone for who they are and not necessarily what's between their legs, then that's, that's possible. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. I could talk about this forever because it's such a <laughs> vast topic and I, I, you know, I kind of have to digest everything. It's like looking at what you just spoke about. It made sense, but I just didn't understand it the first time you said it. I was trying to think of it. Uh, it's really hard for, I don't know, I think it's because we just don't understand. A lot of us just, you know, assume, oh, you're either straight or, you, you know, that's pretty much it. Or maybe you're gay. And yeah, you know, we just learned that later on. I think it's more accepting now, like a lot more, but you know, certain States, certain places, certain areas, you know, that's like a kind of a no, no spoke about. You just said you were saying that you had to digest everything. <laughs> it's, it's really uh, difficult to figure it all out for me and figuring it all out. Cause I, you know, I never realized people were different from me. I assume everyone wants the same. It's just like a, an assumption you make. It's like, oh, 
you know, when, when you're a kid and you're just walking around, you don't know anything. You're just taking it step by step. And but, that, but that's a good assumption because everybody is like you, mm. but it's different. And if people look at people just like they are yourself, there's going to be much less hatred. And that's the thing is that just because, you know, if you're looking at people from the outside, everybody is just like you. We're all human. Mm-hmm. And that's what people need to understand is that just because you might like chicken and the other person likes steak doesn't mean that you can't, you're not the same type of people. You're still human. And that's the same thing. Just like the person likes a woman instead of a man, you're still human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the whole point. And I never understood the, the hatred part. Like, you know, when I found out someone was gay, I was like, oh, cool. At least I know now, you know, it was never like... Never, for me, it was never like the, oh my gosh, this is terrible. We need to make him straight. We mean, you know, it wasn't right. that, that for me. And then, but I would see other people's reaction. They're like, oh my god, he's gay. I knew it. Blah blah blah. You know, it's a bad thing. You know, and I never understood it because I was like, like, is this not acceptable? I thought it would be acceptable. I was like, right. Well, it's a fear that people think, oh, he's gay. He's going to start hitting on me now. Oh, my God, mm-hmm. what am I going to do? You know, it's, it's their own fear. But if you don't have a fear of that and you accept people for who they are, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. But what happens when that happens, when a gay man and a, and a straight man, you know, they kind of interact and it's really strange sometimes. I always find out, I'm like, so, like, how did that go, you know? I think that if there's a fear of someone getting hit on, most of the time you're not going to get hit on unless you're gay. I mean, people that are gay usually know they get the sign. Same thing with someone who's heterosexual. You're not going to just go hitting on someone. Well, sometimes you may. <laughs> you, know, you know, you'll get the signs if someone is attracted to you or wants your feedback, you know, mm-hmm. back and forth. But I think that if people can all just get along and not worry about the other thing, you know, if someone hits on you and you're not interested, just say, you know, uh, sorry, I, I play on a different side or it's not for me. You know, just like a woman would say to a guy, you know, sorry, I'm not interested, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm someone who's blonde and blue eye and not someone who's dark hair, dark eye, whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. I think that it's just if you don't, you know, it's, it's a fear. And that's what causes the hatred and the, the judgment is fear. Yeah, I think that's what it is. All right. Well, Dr. Stacy, this was wonderful to talk to you. Probably have you on, on again because I did not get everything, but it was pretty. Write down and have me on again. <laughs> yes. All right. You have a beautiful day. Thank you. And if anyone has any questions, they can find me at drstacy.org. Drstacy.org. All right. It will yeah. be in the description or show notes, whatever you call them. Sounds good.